1: Hello everyone and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We have a very accomplished guest joining us this week. I will start with his chess resume. So our guest is an international master. Uh, He was U.S. junior co-champion in 1977, the year that I was born. Um, he is, uh, he, he broke a record at the age of 13. He became the youngest American since Bobby Fisher. to so hold the the title of us chess master. Of course, that record has since been broken many times, but still anytime you're breaking a record of Bobby Fisher, that's a, that's a nice little, little line on your resume and his academic resume is perhaps even more, um, more accomplished. He has uh, degrees in mathematics from Princeton and Oxford. He is a professor in, um, computer science at the University of Buffalo. And last but not least, as we will be discussing, he's one of the world's foremost experts on anti-cheating measures in chess, specifically on how uh, catching people using computers to help their play. So without further ado, doctor and international master Kenneth Regan, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me on. That could have been my longest intro yet, Ken. Okay. <laughs> which which uh, speaks volumes about what you've done in your life. So as I, as I mentioned to you in our email exchange uh, leading up to this, um, I'm, of course, someone uh, of your stature who's done as much in and out of the chess world as someone I've wanted to to interview for a long time. But your name came up in the coverage of this Igor Roussys, uh, Grandmaster Igors Roussys story, which for, I think most listeners will have heard this somewhat sad story, but basically um, this is a Grandmaster who's been improving a lot. Some people had suggested to me that I should have him on as an adult improver guest. that in his in his fifties he'd gained uh he was closing in on gaining two hundred points and he had just reentered the top one hundred list um and unfortunately. We don't know all the details yet, but it's been a huge story that's made both chess headlines and uh, you know uh, modern mainstream media headlines. He was uh, admitted to using a phone in the bathroom, um, uh, presumably, or allegedly, I guess you would say, to help him in his chess games. So Dr. Regan, first of all, um, how, how much can you say about this case? Let's start with that.
0: I actually don't know much about the facts on the ground at the uh, what happens at the tournament. And um, so I so I I don't really have much information to give um, other than what has been generally reported about the nature of my statistical results.
1: Okay, yeah, because I saw in in several different stories covering it, I think one of them was from chess 24 and another was from chess dot com. Um, they, your name just came up as someone who had been in consultation with FIDE. So I didn't know, I know that FIDE has been pretty tight lipped about this as an open investigation. So I wasn't sure, you know, how involved you were in this, but, but, um, yeah, I'm, I am an advisor, but not a member of the
0: fair play commission. Uh, one of the principles under the sporting law, under which FIDE is incorporated, is that there must be separation of concerns between prosecutorial, legislative, and judicial functions. So the Ethics Commission serves most of the ju- judicial function. I am classed as an expert witness, Okay. so, so I'm consulted on in cases like this, but oh. I, I'm, I'm not privy to everything.
1: Okay. And how closely, how aware of you were this, how aware of this story were you before um, the, the big news broke in the past couple of weeks?
0: Oh, yes, I, I have been. I mean, the news stories say that, uh, you know, that the Fair Play Commission had been tracking this for months, and I was part of that tracking. And, uh, you know, I had heard uh, things about it previously as well.
1: Okay, well, that's good to hear because I had heard. I know uh, Grandmaster Danny Gormley is someone who has been fairly vocal on Twitter, saying like something's up with this. You know, people need to be taking a look at this. And of course, that's always dangerous for someone to say because you're 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 um, casting aspersions on someone's integrity without necessarily having evidence. But in this case, it looks like he may have have proven to be to be right. So. One question I had for you that sort of relates to this Rousey's case, but isn't uh, identical, is: are, the, are there a lot of other lesser-known cases that that you sort of have your eye on right now in in your role um, helping FIDE? Well, they aren't cases. I mean, you know, I look over a lot of data,
0: but one of the principles that's also relating to uh, uh, Grandmaster Gormley is that. I'm not here to spring into action whenever I see something. I have to follow due processes and communications with uh, organs of a world body. And one of the principle is that there's a difference if I'm acting in response to a formal complaint or not. I'm not a vigilante. Good.
1: Yeah. But, you, sorry. Yeah. I think you have a lot on your plate as it is with your, your day job. So uh, that, 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 that's right. So, so, I mean, cases, I don't
0: know. They aren't cases. But uh, but I do, however, have a responsibility to keep abreast of the data and especially to understand what anomalies might be occurring naturally.
1: Okay, and and speaking of anomalies, I mean you're referring, of course, to statistics of uh, tracking how um, you know how how engine like people play. But could you explain uh, for for listeners who might not be familiar in sort of as um as as um. Layman friendly in as layman friendly terms as possible, uh, how it is that you work to uh, catch people using engines in chess? Yeah,
0: I'll be glad to because there's a much larger context that I think is important to understand. What I actually do for research is predictive analytics. This is a general term. It deals with the forecasting of probabilities or naturally frequent natural frequencies. For events or decisions. So if you're an insurance company, you want to know what is the probability given a house's location and its neighborhood of damage from fire or from air or from water or from ground movement. And also, once you have the probabilities, you can then also forecast costs resulting from any of those outcomes. Another case of predictive uh, analytics, weather forecasting, even betting on horse races, uh, um, stock trading. Okay, all, all cases where you need to put probabilities on things. In my case, the probabilities are on chess moves selected by a person in terms of that person's rating and other parameters that reflect the person's skills and style of play
1: okay and what that ends up being is that that you have an an algorithm basically that that you've been developing for years that's um, right
0: based on many uh, millions of moves chess positions chess data te- hundreds of thousands over several hundred thousand games at this point
1: okay and I know that've I've seen you discuss this in, in other interviews that you've done but I think it would be helpful for listeners if you could just um. If you could share with us what, what motivates you uh, to, to donate so much of your time to this cause. Yeah, oh, it's, it's interesting. I mean, going all the way back, people,
0: you know, knowing I'm a chess player, have wanted me to do computer chess. And I've not wanted to do a Me Too project in computer chess. But I was online. I had commentary privileges as an IM during the 2006 World Championship match when the cheating accusations broke. And Frederick Friedel said over the open chat line, is there anyone qualified to help us evaluate the kind of statistical Mm. accusation in Silvio Danilov's letter? And I realized, oh, yes, I'm qualified. Um, So I therefore went about the task of building a model of an honest player using computer evaluations of that player's moves, the kind of fighting fire with fire. And that is a, uh, it, it's a research task that had been undertaken by other people, Mate Guide and Ivan Bratko in particular, but uh, not on the scale and not with uh, some of the things uh, that I observed. And what makes this a great challenge is that it is, has not just been for, for cheating detection. It has led me to discover what I think really have the standing of natural laws in terms of large scale patterns about how people think.
1: Interesting. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, so I can so I can elaborate one of them, uh, which
0: I call the uh, the slime mold story. So slime molds have been observed that even though they're many tiny little organisms. They form themselves into large-scale patterns and problem-solve. Now, let's take computer evaluations of moves, and let's look at cases where one move is like a hundredth of a pawn better than another, or two-hundredths of a pawn, or three-hundredths of a pawn. Chess programs output values in terms of what are called centipawn, hundredths of a pawn. And you might think when you're looking at a chessboard that there's no possible way you could tell the difference. But if you look over thousands of games and look at the relative probability of playing moves given that difference in value given by a computer, you see, yes, um, one, one cent a pawn. it's about a 53 54% preference for the move the computer thinks better by human players of all rating levels. Uh, two centiporns is about 57, 58 percent, and three centiporns is pushing 60 percent.
1: Huh. Um, so what are, the, what are the practical implications of, uh, of these differences? Well, it means that w-
0: there are things in our brain that are sensitive to slight difference in values that do come out in the main. Uh, I can make analogy to the problem of guessing how many jelly beans there are in a jar. I mean, if you just walk up to any one person at a fair where there's a big jar of jelly beans, you know, that the answer could be anywhere. But if you ask several hundred people, the average of their answers is, of, has been observed to be pretty close.
1: Yeah, the wisdom, so, the
0: wisdom of crowds. Wisdom of crowds is involved, certainly. Um, now, there's a, there's, a however, a really funny other law, and this is where it begins to get deep. So as I said, when it's a three cent difference in the moves, it's pushing 60%. So how about if it's a zero cent difference between the moves? So look for cases. You can often find them on chest bomb uh, or Chess 24 when they're showing analysis of more than one move at a time by the engine. Uh, about 8 to 10% of the time, you will observe that two moves have equal optimal value. Okay, so when the when the um, moves differ by zero centipawns, what percentage of time do humans prefer the move the computer lists first?
1: You're asking me. Yeah. Um, so how many moves? How many choices are, do we have? Let, down let's to? say
0: there are just two moves that okay. are that are tied in value. To the computer, their values are identical, and since the computers are much stronger than we are nowadays, we have no reason to think that the moves are anything but identical, too.
1: Okay. Well, I mean, a lot of it sort of m- might come down to the aesthetics of of what's a more human-looking move, as it were. Um, I it mean, could. I mean, the default, I guess, would be 50-50, but, but I mean, if it's like a king move, you know, when when your king's in check, and if one move stops you from castling, even if it's an objectively... Uh, decent move, that sort of move, with with the way that people, um, people's brain, pe- chess players have been trained not to give up the right to castle. So something like that, I would guess on the higher end. Whereas if it's two like equally judged developing moves, I would come down pretty close to fifty fifty. Right, but
0: the computerist still has its own choice about which one to list first. So how would Stockfish know which is the more human looking move? Hmm. Why does Stockfish list one move first? So here's a concrete case. Take the Alyakin-Capablanca match of 1927. There are about 1,000 cases where Stockfish says they had choice of two equal moves. Now, of course, Capablanca and Alyakin didn't know anything about Stockfish. Now, just isolate cases where there were two equal value moves. One of those two moves was played. Okay, so how often... Do you think that Capablanca or yekin found the move that Stockfish, 90 years later, would list first?
1: Hmm.
0: Um, like an ESP test, precognition. 40%? No, nope, the opposite. So, so Capablanca and Yekin in, in that sense, predicted Stockfish correctly almost 60%. Hmm. So that's weird. Why? I mean, the moves of equal value. Why would Stockfish list? Now, you could say maybe Stockfish has Capablanca's games in its database. Okay, I don't know. Um, uh, I think not. But here's the reason. The reason is that chess engines use stable sorting to sort moves at one round of depth and to keep the order for the next round of depth to use for cutoffs. So that's computer science. Stable sorting means that the second move can only be listed first if it properly beats the other one in value. Second, my student, Tamal Bishwash, as part of his doctoral work, went through the data and observed that in in the great majority of these tied cases, the second move was inferior at earlier points in the search. Mm. So the working hypothesis is that that inferiority at earlier points in the search impacts the human brain and reflects that second move having been felt inferior, so humans don't play it. Mm. So it's not ESP. It's an interaction of computer science with a psychological phenomenon of perception.
1: But could you call it intuition or... Yeah, you could call it intuition
0: or call it somehow the computer's printout of move values at all stages in the search is being reflected in human behavior. Hmm. There's a correspondence to it. And it's strong enough to impact people's decisions by a 60% to 50% difference. Okay. Yet... um, I don't know of anyone else who is uh, has observed this or is, or is modeling it, okay? And um, the attempt to control this phenomenon, which is part of how I try to predict cases where people will make, will fall into traps or make inferior moves, is uh, very difficult from the modeling side.
1: What have you found? I mean, I, I know you've found some research that people play worse between the 30th and 40th moves?
0: Well, yeah, that's true. Now, that's a different matter, and it's also an incredible methodological headache. Um, it's part of what I call the sliding scale problem. So that's right. So there is a strong dependence on of quality of play on the thinking time available, so much so that for the uh, Melody Amber, you know, game game 30 plus increment style rapid, it makes a difference of 200 to 210 rating points for the world's best players. And the faster game 15 plus increment style of World Rapid, that's like 280, 290. Except for and, Magnus. Uh, except for Magnus, <laughs> you're right. Uh, and, and, um, and then Blitz, you know, we're talking five to 600 rating points. So what happens is, as we approach move 40, players quite often put themselves in the position of needing to blitz out moves. And I can measure the decay. So I have this wonderful statistic, the the intrinsic performance rating, IPR, which is average overall moves of the game. But the difficult truth is it varies. You know, If I take blocks of four moves, 37 to 40, 33 to 36, uh, so 29 to 32... It varies for those moves quite substantially. So the question is, should I use a sliding scale for per the move number or just lump things together? It's it's really very difficult methodology, and the people who design the SATs and GREs
1: face also very similar centering considerations. That makes sense. Yeah, I could see the similarities. And and you mentioned, I think um, I read that you that people also play worse when there's a, a, a larger um, advantage or disadvantage for one player? That's
0: right. So that's another uh, – that is actually something that I don't think I sharpen my tools to get a full handle on. It's the reason why um, there are steps I take that are conservative – meaning I estimate the players maybe highly that, than they deserve, but it's giving them benefit of doubt. So my model is trained on games where both players were equally rated. Um, I did an experiment once where um, I did I took intrinsic ratings of matches, all the world championship and candidate matches, going back to the beginning of ratings, and then compared it with round-robin tournaments. And on the matches... The average of my IPR figures, which weren't trained on those matches at all, uh, versus the average of the players' ratings weighted by the length of the match, those are within two ELO of each other. That's how close my IPRs came. But for tournaments, the average IPR of a tournament is often 15, 20, 25 points less. And I don't know what to attribute that to, except perhaps... The fact that often there's a difference in ratings of the tournament, and especially a player who starts poorly is identified as the rabbit, and people, you know, play harder against that player. Uh, I'm not. I'm. I, uh, I. I must say, I'm not really sure.
1: Hmm. Um. Well, I mean, I find this stuff really interesting, Ken. I mean, I, obviously, it has implications way beyond. Um, the the anti cheating measures and and right. you've also of course you mentioned the uh, capablanca yaken match um you've been one of the the people who's done research about um judging the quality of different world champions moves over time is is that right that's right yes and what are the what are the highlights what do we need to know well of uh, one thing that that
0: uh, most important to know i think is that capablanca was incredibly accurate so I should say that as it still stands, my model is primarily a measure of accuracy. What I said earlier about predicting swings and values, I'm trying to measure challenge created, but it's been a very difficult challenge. So solely in terms of accuracy, I have Capablanca Blanca in the middle 2900s in the New York tournament of 1927. Wow. Okay and uh, so so there was a reason why he was considered an invincible machine and in the chess world per my figures had never seen anything like that
1: that's okay. amazing
0: and the capablanca alyekin match itself is 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 very high quality for accuracy again they're both in the 2700s and that wasn't seen again until uh, uh until the fischer spasky era so now if I say that the, um, that the Botvinik matches had uh, lower um, IPRs, well, it might be more accuracy. I and mean, people have pointed to blunders. We were, I was having a conversation just recently, I, I don't know, on Facebook or something about the Botvinik-Bronstein matches having obvious blunders. and Maybe that's it. But also maybe those matches, you know, it wasn't Queen's Gambit declined. It was, it was much murkier chess. Uh, you know, call it Soviet school or whatever, but maybe in the future, when I tame things down, I'll be able to measure those matches as uh, as having been more challenging, and equalize measures that I think are a little bit uh, downweighted just in terms of accuracy. It's a similar question with how should I rate players uh, when they are you know playing challenging moves or not i mean wesley so's tiebreak games with sergei karyakin today were harum scarum but on the other hand gosh giving up your queen for two pieces is a very challenging way to play and and so made it work yeah yeah you can never remove the human element that's right and and the modeling i think does need to come closer to the human element that's been a driving force of my work um So it's it's not that I just have a tool and you push a button and get a number. And, you know, as I may expand on, depending on how your questioning goes, I have a great number of cross-checks in my model that are there to ensure that it's speaking general horse sense, okay, and doing well, not just on the tasks that it's specifically trained to do.
1: Huh. Well, don't let my questioning uh, okay. box you in too much, Ken, if there's <laughs> if there's something that you, that you would like to discuss, by all means, um, you know, our, I'm sure our listeners would love to hear about it. Um, okay. what, one question I had is mentioning today's matches, mentioning uh, the Sokaryakin match um, makes me wonder how, how closely are you generally following uh, and running um, like modern chess matches through your algorithm? Is it common for you to be watching during the day? Yes,
0: I I guess it's okay for for me to reveal that I I am, in fact, officially monitoring that event. In fact, my uh, analysis run of today's games, I set it in motion just before the interview, and it would take me a few minutes to uh, put what are just the screening reports, not my full model, but really just in some sense a box score uh, out uh, into a private location for the uh, staff to view. The screening report is something that is actually supposed to be automated, where tournament directors could submit a game file and, and get my reports automatically, but for various reasons that that system has uh, not been brought to fruition.
1: Okay. And how, how common is it for you to be monitoring um, one of these uh, elite tournaments?
0: I, you know, fairly common. I mean, I this is often published information in the tournament report, so I'm you know, not giving anything away um, by doing it. I will say, however, though, that the cases or things brought to my attention generally do not come from elite tournaments, but, yeah. but come from tournaments at or below the uh, level of the Strasbourg Open that, that was uh, in, in question here.
1: Okay. And how, how often are things called to your attention, um, bringing it back to the sort of anti-cheating measures? Um, it's, it
0: varies greatly. I mean, 2016 and 2017 were relatively quiet years. 28 summer, 2018 was horrible. <laughs> mm. Um, and, uh, so I've
1: been, other than I'm just thinking out loud that this has been the, the only major story. I mean, there's been online stuff, which of course I'd like to discuss, but, but there in terms of live chess, this has been the one that has made the biggest headlines like, um, is there other, other, I guess there's other investigations still ongoing or have there been people been caught where they keep it, or I shouldn't say caught because, you know, we're, we're operating in the realm of probabilities, not certainties. Um, but are, are there, are there other cases, um, ongoing?
0: Yeah. Well, when I say, you know, things brought to my attention or you know, I would say even still the majority of them are not positive. Okay. So, so, in other words, they don't become a case, but this still matters, um, uh, brought to my attention. Um, and the, 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 what's really at issue is more communications and procedures, um, with, with these cases. I mean, the, the, the fact is it's very difficult to get a report to be substantiated beyond simple witch hunting or accusation, you know, um. And, and it's even difficult for people if they make observations with matching of chess moves to make those observations accurately. I mean, there was one case in a tournament in Austria quite a few years back where, uh, you know, the accusation said, look, eight, eight, eight moves were with stockfish, which enabled him to win the game. And uh, when I did my scientific report under controlled circumstances, I got only one match out of those eight moves. And I was able to demonstrate that four of those moves were definite mistakes by the player.
1: Hmm.
0: So however the data was taken, you know, if you run an engine and you see the move after one second, you go, okay, I'll skip to the next move. Other time you run the engine, you might let it go for a minute or so. And then you see the move and, okay, I say that was a match. Uh, So the fact is the engines do change their preferred move various times during the search. They have to. That's how they get better. Um, and, uh, but you can, if you act whenever you see a move and count it as a match, you're perpetrating a very substantial confirmation bias.
1: Uh, Right. Yeah. And there's also the issue of, uh, false positives. Um, Well, well, that's right now. False positive.
0: Yeah. That's that, that word has to be said into context. Um, so here's a question. If your luggage is searched at an airport, when you go through airport screening would you call that a false positive?
1: well did they find anything? no <laughs> um, but,
0: so that's why that's to say that's the false part you know you're, you, you you weren't bringing any
1: anything bad onto the uh, plane um, so uh, so if they don't find anything you wouldn't even assert that it's a false positive
0: right but on the other hand you were stopped you were searched. Right. So you you weren't just let through the first level of screening, which is just when your bag goes through the examiner and you take it away. Right. So that's the thing, at what stage do you do you call it a false positive? I mean now if they if they search your luggage and then they take you in for questioning for for a couple of hours and then you're allowed to proceed, okay, that you might call a false positive.
1: Right.
0: So so there's an issue. So I so I do have um, so the screening test was meant to be a first stage in order to identify players who m- perhaps should be subject to further watchfulness, but there's not yet intended to be any imputation of guilt. It, it, it was a, it's intended as a way to prioritize arbiter attention during a tournament. Taking also the advice, I don't think that uh, Frederick Friedel will mind my uh, uh, quoting him on this, saying that one thing that you really need at a a chess tournament is a magician. Well, why do I say a magician? Someone trained in observing people. Mm -hmm. For instance, possibly observing spectators for for possible signaling or just unusual goings-on. So that is a... uh, very fluid element of uh anti-cheating measures so it's a question of how to how to uh allocate that aspect of watchfulness
1: yeah i know that you're a baseball fan it's like combining the the scouts who combine the analytics with the the uh, quote-unquote eye test of uh watching a player it, it definitely because i mean as you say i mean well Let's read this quote. I know you. there was a nice feature article written on you in uh, Chess Life magazine in 2014, mm-hmm. which um, they, they left online, I mean, which is available online for everyone to read. So I'll link to that in the show, in the show description. But one quote that I found pretty interesting um, is the. so you can tell me, so this was uh, a quote from the author, whose name is uh, Howard Goldowski, not from yourself. Right, right I know. But so Howard says in any large open tournament with at least a thousand non-cheating players, the chances are very high that at least one of those honest players will earn a Z score of three or more an ostensibly suspicious value. Correct. And that selection bias or or look elsewhere issue, that's a very major
0: consideration.
1: Yeah. So so you're sort of the first line of defense, I guess, but not. That's, That's right. So so here's so here's the point. So like the screening test will probably
0: give A three sigma score on some player just because but there's nothing to distinguish that player so an example i used recently was let's say the player is wearing green sneakers okay he or she might be the only person in the big room wearing green sneakers but it's not that's not correlated or associated with anything explanatory so um so but on the other hand if there is some definite evidence, like if the person has bulging socks or if someone spotted a wire that was noted when the pants leg came up. Then that's a specific observation. And that combined with a three sigma Z score, the observation pins down the player and then the three sigma Z score becomes a statistical unlikelihood. Uh, so it is in fact the combination of, statistical evidence and on the ground evidence and the trade-off between them that still is really being hammered out. It's it's a very difficult uh, problem. So anyway, so the screening test is there to give the three sigmas just to say, hey, arbiters, you know, a thousand players in the room, but here's a handful of people. Uh, So the screening test was intended to avoid false negatives. You don't want to let anyone who might possibly be cheating escape scrutiny. Same way you don't want to let anyone who might possibly be bringing something unauthorized onto a plane escape scrutiny. So we're going to search every person who trips the likelihood up to a certain level. Doesn't mean they're guilty. Most baggage searches are negative. But it's something you do as a a first line. Um, And then, of course, you, you want to do this discreetly not in any way that disturbs the player or is or is aware but then if there is an issue it can go to the second level which is my full test which is completely private and the full test is built to avoid false positives so 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 one issue of perception is whether the three sigma result from my screening test should be considered a false positive And I actually had the screening test set. Screening test has an expectation of 50 for your rating, okay, based on your rating. And it was set so that Three Sigma was about 70, actually intended 3.2. But it wound up being more like 2.8. And so what that means is that if if you have 60,000 players playing and Three Sigma is... um, is one in seven hundred fifty frequency okay so you're you're talking upwards of a hundred or more cases that would could be thought of as false positives and maybe in total that's other people would think well that's too much crying wolf so i altered the screening test but now maybe it's not performing it's other the other function because now uh Cases of players where there's substantial things behind the case have turned out to be mid-60s in my new formula. Still around three sigma, but, you know, it's a question. I, I had it set so that seeing a seven in a certain place meant, okay, it's on my whole page of data, you can easily spot this.
1: Huh. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting. It's such a thorny problem. I mean... I think it was also in in the same article that uh, that Howard Godolsky referenced a quote from Anand that that if someone just used a computer once at one critical moment per game, he thought he thought that they could gain 150 points in Elo.
0: Yeah, I think that's an accurate estimate.
1: Yeah, that's because how do you stop that? You
0: know? Well, yeah. So, so this is so this is something I'll say also where I can give a seat of the pants calculation. You know, that that is reasonably close to what seems to be the truth. Okay, so uh, so I'm going to... So, would you prefer me to do this for a five-game tournament or a nine-game tournament? Uh, Let's do five. Okay, all right, five. All right, so five, maybe 150 moves total. So, not counting moves one to eight in the opening, but, you know, for 30 moves per game. Or 144, let's say. Now... It so happens that matching the computer goes from 40% to 60% uh, as you go from low, uh, you know, beginning players to the to world champion level, and it stays pretty close to 50%, so it's like flipping a coin. So I can reason about it just like the act of, okay, so let's flip a coin 150 times. How many more heads can we expect to get? Okay, so... Uh, so, an extra head is like an extra move of cheating. Okay. Now, um, so with 144, the uh, standard deviation is 6. So, therefore, an excess of 18 is 3 standard deviations, which is above the uh, the threshold set by FIDE for statistical significance in the presence of other evidence. So... This means that if you um, flip a coin 150 times, you expect to get 75 heads. If you get uh, 18 more, 93, that's a 1 in 750 shot. You know, fairly unusual, hard to do. But now those 18 extra heads, you played 5 games, so that's um, 3 to 4 times per game. Okay, now if you... Go to the bathroom twice, but and what you see there influences not just one move, uh, but maybe two or three. Then you can get into a statistically significant situation cheating just, quote, once or twice per game. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so I, I mean, it is a common place to say, yeah, I'm not going to be able to detect uh, cheating on just one move per game, but don't push it right <laughs> the seat of the pants uh, reasoning shows that you know you can get close to the line
1: yeah well wow. um okay so so ken i want to i sent you a, a handful of questions we got from uh, supporters of the podcast so i think now is a good time to jump in with the first one which is from john carruthers so thanks for the support john and what John asks is he says I'd love to hear some practical discussion advice for an OTB for OTB club players who believe foul play is occurring in a tournament. What to look for, what to say to your opponent or the TD, etc.
0: Yeah, well, I don't know about saying with the opponent, but definitely communicate with the director. So in any situation that that seems to be anomalous, very first thing should be to inform the tournament staff. And and it, there a has been an initiative for quite some time to inform tournament staffs about what might arise, what case histories are, what to look for. Um, And the other thing is, if your complaint is based on your going over games with engines, then realize that what you are doing is reporting the results of an experiment and therefore, you must document, you know, carefully what it is that you observed. I okay. mean, this, the, you know, this this is taught in in middle school science, right. uh, and and you have to realize that's that is essentially what you're doing. Um, so, um. Uh, so, but of course, that's that's very difficult for the layperson.
1: Yeah. Um. And yeah, and and with the Rousez case, of course, there's there's issues of privacy that come into play. Like this surf, this picture of him in in the toilet stall with his phone came out. Yeah, that out. I
0: know nothing about.
1: Yeah, no one, no one wants to take credit for that one. I mean, I mean, FIDE basically hasn't commented that they had anything to do with it. There's been mixed reports about whether or not they were involved in it. But I mean, it sort of it raises the broader question of even even once you suspect someone. Like what exactly are your rights for for um, taking next steps yeah
0: i I mean that's right. I mean one thing that that is recognized and this this is you know, all of these issues are very carefully discussed among uh members of the commission they they very much dominated our time um and so there is a recognition that there are bounds you can go to. While to defend a tournament while it's in progress, similar to how the police have more discretion with an ongoing situation. Okay, so for instance, I am more freely able to communicate directly with arbiters uh, on a, a, a when a tournament is ongoing. Um, but if it's after the tournament, then there are uh, channels of communication that we have to observe. Mm-hmm. um I said I don't know anything myself about the uh about the rouses' picture. um I do not believe that that was the origin of catching him, but it, it is uh definitely acknowledged that there were was extra watchfulness in place at that tournament uh because communications have been made from from the commission based
1: on my reports right. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. I mean, especially because, as you say, at the at the highest levels, you know, the elite tournaments, uh, the top players have so much to lose, and there's so many eyes on the players generally that it seems like cheating is maybe not as much of an issue, but... But any level below that, certainly going all the way down to the club level, like John Carruthers asked about, it just seems so, so hard. I mean, you can't have a magician. <laughs> you can't have a magician on yeah. staff at every tournament, even though it's it de- right. even though it does sound like a, a good idea. And I think it would go a long way. Um, yeah. Just just the power of observation. You can promote watchfulness. Yeah, you so. can. And you can be vigilant yourself, uh, although respectful of of people's um privacy and you know handle things as you mentioned in a in a professional and discreet manner where appropriate but but yeah it's um it's tough but I mean thank you for for I mean uh, we're not closing the interview but at least I I have a lot more questions for you but I mean I I kind of would like to transition to online cheating because as I find the live cheating question somewhat sobering but I mean I think at least with with more resources, if it's something that can be budgeted for, I think that and with with work that people like yourself are doing behind the scenes, I think that the the tide can at least be stemmed. But with online, it's harder. So how how much work have you done with catching online cheaters? Uh, very
0: little. Okay. And um, occasionally, um, by various people, I've been asked to give a second opinion in judgments that have been made online, sometimes by the uh, organizer, sometimes by a, a person, a child. Um, but there, there are differences. So, so I, I had a wonderful conversation with ICC co-founder Daniel Slater in November 2006, right after the uh, Topolov Kramnik issue. Mm -hmm. And to clarify for me that there are are fundamental differences in situation and approach, and the two domains really don't intersect so much. The online services have a lot more information, and also, they are directly able to build a model of a cheating player, in other words, cheating patterns. I mean, you can find this even in the online documentation for Leeches, which is... um, which is publicly available and readable, okay. Um, whereas my approach is completely done by modeling the honest player uh, for reasons of science as well, and then detecting cheating as a deviation from that. Okay, so there's so, so there's there's less less commonality than one might suppose, uh, and then the other thing is oh my gosh, I mean Mike Klein's article in. The February Chess Life was so distressing. I mean, every it should be required reading for everyone, at least as a student of human nature.
1: Was that so. the Danny Wrench one? The the cover. Oh, short? Danny Wrench, whoever yeah. wrote
0: the February Chess Life article. Yeah,
1: yeah, there was a big article by Danny Wrench about Danny all the, the okay. Chess.com. I mean, they both work for Chess.com. In your defense, yeah. Yeah, yeah. um about uh how all the measures that they take to try to. to catch cheaters and yeah, of course, interact with mike more but I'm, I'm just talking about the
0: incidents, the frequency
1: yeah and, and of course the incentive is not always clear um especially okay and in their titled tuesdays and stuff there's decent cash prizes so that part i understand a little bit but they have people cheating just on regular daily games blitz games i mean it's like wh- what are what are these people trying to accomplish um which uh which brings me to my next laundry list of questions. Um, mm-hmm. So um, I sent you these. They're from Stuart Katz. Do you know Stuart, by the way? I maybe would remember him. Yeah. Okay. Because I, I think he's about your age. Um. But I know he lives in California now. But anyway, the, some of the questions made me think he might know you. I'm just going to read them all and you can answer as many or as few as you want. Um So Stuart asks, uh, why do you think people cheat at chess? Um, Do you think there's a correlation between actual playing strength of the cheaters and their justification rationale in cheating? I haven't gotten too too deeply into that. (laughs) Right. Uh, Where do you see the next big battle against cheating being fought? Uh, Have you ever cheated at a game or in school? um when again you can plead the fact yeah, yeah. Skip i once behaved
0: these... unethically in a blitz term which i greatly regret it was, it was sort of like you know the guy was about to mate me and kind of claimed it and didn't and then flag uh, i was just very bad behavior by me but you know, when i was a kid yeah um so so i can that's maybe the closest i can directly empathize okay. um but um let's see the um Wait, I've forgotten the other questions. Okay. Um,
1: do you, why do you
0: think people cheat? Uh, I mean, yeah, there are all sorts of reasons. There's something that I hope something would somebody would be able to help me trace. At the time of Tapol Kasparov, there was a really well written long comment on a forum saying that uh, somewhat admitting cheating online for self esteem reasons, saying that you know I do get a charge. When I see a famous name go down from moves that are being made with my hand online, and unfortunately I didn't copy it or bookmark it, and it's been lost to Google or whatever, so so if someone could trace that for me, that would be that that, that that's you know uh, uh, an information point I wish I'd kept. Um, otherwise, the other explanation I give is. The sort of because it's possible.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's
0: an element of Brownian motion here, where people may just fall into patterns because they're possible. You know, a lapse of, of uh, concentration or sanity or whatever. Um, you know, a kid trying it out just because, hey, you know, it's it's possible. Let me uh, do it. And you know, I, 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 you know, but I'm just guessing here. This is out of my uh, my field. Yeah, there are friends of ours who deal much more with the psychology.
1: Yeah, and people cheat in every activity that has ever been invented, people have tried to cheat at. So, <laughs> right. um, uh, you know, sometimes the incentives are a little easier to understand than others. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, that's the reality. Um, okay, a few few more. Now, from... uh, sorry, the, the battle that might be faced, this even
0: was mentioned by Dennis Manacrusos, uh, the Chessvine blog, is, you know, at some point there are going to be, we're going to be dealing with bodily implants,
1: you know, cognitive enhancements. Wow. That's a good point. Yeah.
0: And, and the question is, you know, is that cheating or not? Yeah. <laughs> we're still in the era where is it okay for a golfer to use a cart if he's, you know, as, as, as bad legs, this sort of thing.
1: Huh? That, yeah, that, I don't even know if that will be a battle. They'll just have to make up, make a decision, <laughs> make a bright line and yeah. uh, stick with it. Um, okay, and he's got a few more here. Again, you can answer or skip them. But uh, what is the most elaborate and/or expensive cheating attempt you've been able to detect? Uh, what cheating meth do you, method do you believe is hardest to detect? Um, how, how can you really like cricket? We'll talk about that later. Yeah, uh, yeah, okay. But uh, but but so so I I
0: wouldn't I don't have a judgment on hardest to detect because in some sense all I see are the numbers. I'm not on site. Looking at the uh, at the paraphernalia, I did, however, though put the different physical ways people have cheated to a Dr. Seuss rhyme in the uh, in the TEDx Buffalo talk I gave uh, five years ago, and you can find that by googling the phrase in quotes Ada the Amplifier. <laughs> it takes you to an article I wrote on the computer pioneer Ada Lovelace. On the blog, Girdle's Lost Letter and P equal NP, which I co-write, which was founded by a distinguished professor, Richard Lipton, and is you know one of the prominent weblogs in mathematical computing. And I'm you know blessed to to co-write it. So at the bottom of that article, my TED talk is indexed.
1: Yeah, I'll I'll link to it in the show description as as mm-hmm. well. Um Okay, and let's see. And the point I'm making about Ada Lovelace by
0: the way is that, you know, there are up and down estimates of her actual contribution and I think everyone misses the point that the real basis for comparison should be the advisor student relationship. Did she amplify the work of her advisor? Yes. <laughs>
1: hmm.
0: So, that, that's that's the important thing.
1: Anyway, Okay. And he's got a few more here. Uh, they get a little more, um, I think, based on personal experiences. Um, do you remember Larry Evans' mother selling his books at the Gorgeburg Run Junior Tournaments?
0: Absolutely. I remember my mom was still with us, so used to have long conversations with Larry Evans' mother, both while the games were being played. Yeah. So yes, that was wonderful.
1: Yeah. She and She was I, really nice. Yeah. And I, I think I know the answer to these next well at least this next one why do you think you never became a gm and to what extent do you regret not getting a gm title
0: i had uh, too many other interests and uh, i i looked the im title gave me the commentary privileges at play chess that uh, you know led to my being able to spring to action on this so um so that was good yeah I, if i kept at it i would have been forecast to be about the level of Yasser Sarawan. so
1: Wow yeah and he's not he's not speaking out of turn i mean you were you were at the very top of your age group in the in the u s throughout your through your teens is that right that's right and and here's one of
0: the things you know let's say for some reason um you know all my other uh academic pursuits were tied up neatly in a pin or someone declared thou shalt have a two year sabbatical and then I went to to get back into chess and maybe actually studied the game. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> to not, not just rely on my skill in end endgames. Um, then maybe my rating would go up 200 points. You know, it might go to a level of some latent skill. Uh, you know, that, that could happen with other cares taken away. So that's why, for instance, you know, uh, what one cannot dismiss what, what, uh, what happened with Igor's Rouse's out of hand. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I'll say much more particularly... Nigel Short wonders, why has my rating gone up? Hmm. Uh, and, uh, so
1: Interesting. Yeah, and the, the Rousest thing, I mean, there was an element of sadness about it because I saw some people online saying this guy was an inspiration to me. Um, yeah. Because, you know, uh, I mean, we have a lot of, a lot of listeners, uh, adults working very hard to improve, and as you get older, um, you, you know, it certainly gets harder. So to see this guy doing what he was doing, um, if, if you weren't looking too closely at the, the mechanics of what was going on, I mean, it, it, it wasn't an, an inspiring gain, but I mean, I'm sure there are people out there, um, you know, making, making good strides. And certainly I've talked to some at a, at a lower level than, than GM Rouse's. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's hear some, some stories from your, your chess playing years, Ken. Um, mm-hmm. we, we've got, I feel like we've. I mean, there's obviously we could talk for hours about the dour subject of cheating, but I, I yeah, there's there's one more general modeling thing I want to say, but sure, a little bit about my chess playing, yeah. Okay, but let's hear the modeling thing before we move on. Okay, okay. So, so there's
0: there is a um, bigger game that I'm that I'm after. So one really great feature of my model as has as said all of these cross checks, and so I can tell when it's uh other other health indicators of the uh, model and one thing most in particular it's it's a decision theory model but with a a different setting usually with decision theory it's one choice many choosers for instance brands of toothpaste or candidates in in an election same choice millions of people doing the choosing or uh Do you want to take taxi, cab, or uh, bus, or or metro to get downtown? That was the original decision theory application by Daniel McFadden studying mass transit in the San Francisco Bay Area uh, that led him to develop the log-linear model, which was cited in his 2000 economics Nobel Prize. Well, the log-linear model fails in chess. And I don't know whether that's because maybe in chess there's a key difference of having one chooser many choices, many different positions. But once you get beyond that difference, the um, the modeling is the same. What works instead for my model is a log-log linear model, which puts two levels of exponentiation when you solve the equations and actually makes the model much more difficult to control it's really a, a, a highly non-linear model but it works so i have a post titled london calling on the same girdles Lost letter blog that i wrote last october before the Caruana uh, carlson match that you know lays out the data for this now i noticed this 10 years ago and i thought well you know it's like playing the marshall rui lopez with c6 instead of knight f6 the uh, the log linear model is model is night f6 and the log log linear is c6 it works better um i could use the log linear model because the weakness it shows it's fine for judging the frequency of the first move and the amount of error that's um you know what you need for the cheating tests but but where it falls down is it gets the frequency of the second move completely wrong. Now this is really weird. Whereas the frequency of the first move is highly dependent on rating, the frequency of the second move stays between 15 and 20%, pretty much independent of your rating. It's very weird, but the log linear model puts it down to down to like 10, 12 percent. It's just something that's glaringly wrong from my data. So there are other indicators beside it, not as easy to describe, that make me wonder if these models are being deployed in general big data decision situations without being thoroughly cross-checked as much as I'm able to do in my chess model. Now, my chess model is a toy for that purpose. It's not directly relevant. The model's being used, for instance, for making loan decisions or parole decisions or college admissions. But it has much more ability to to introspect what is going on with the model's determinations. Also, I made my model fully explainable. So with AlphaZero, famously, you cannot tell why AlphaZero made a move. This has been remarked on because it comes from a computation involving neural nets where you can't necessarily directly trace the factors involved. When stockfish makes a move, okay, you'd have to do a lot of work going into it's an evaluation function, and you would see, okay, the move doubled my pawn, so I took a hit on pawn structure, but it opened up the rooks, and because of this term for black's king safety, we decided to take with the pawn. Um, So... With a lot of models being deployed today, you don't have that level of explainability. So cross-validation, explainability, and then the third issue is bias. So this is a major topic of fairness or bias. So the question is how well does a model perform on subsets of the population that may or may not be relevant Uh, to the questions the model is addressing, but where there may be biases that were already ingrained in the data on which the model is trained. And this is the subject of a very important book by Cathy O'Neill titled Weapons of Math Destruction. And the idea of fairness in modeling has become a major intersection of data science with computational complexity, my proper field. Uh, Several people I've known for a long while have gone into that. So bias avoidance, explainability, and cross-validation are very important. And my chess model has become a very rich setting for exploiting tendencies that might happen. For Mm -hmm. instance, I want to know how well does my model perform on end games? How well does it perform... um, In cases where a move is relatively clear, how well does it perform on complicated positions, which I can define in some way. Uh, Does my model bias in favor of any one chess piece? For instance, I was given a great challenge by the Hungarian computer scientist, uh, American computer scientist, uh, Mario Segedi, about whether his uh, uh, compatriot Judith Polgar moves her knights more often than other players do. And at first glance, the results I got said that all players move their knights more than my model says they should. But then I did a further cross-check with engines. And engines also recommend moving your knights more than my model says it should. So there's a bias in favor of knights, but it seems to be more a very weird slight but weird uh, uh, gap in my model rather than in, in human tendencies. So this is, is, a, is a larger issue that my work is addressed to. At least I hope that, will, that my saying this will satisfy listeners that my own work is very carefully cross-checked. But uh, you know, I, I hosted a series that my department ran inviting speakers on explainable AI and, and data science dangers. Uh, for our colloqu- our distinguished speaker series this past year, and uh, so that well, actually is the is is one of, is the research direction that I most have my sights set on, because
1: there might be some canary in a coal mine
0: things going on with my chest data.
1: Well, Ken, I have to admit I didn't follow the nuts and bolts of the statistics a hundred percent. I'm I tried my best, and I have a feeling some other listeners will be with me. But but it is it is cool to hear that that you're kind of in your sandbox, you know, um, building your models based on, on chess, and the, it has broader implications as well. It strikes me as sort of the best of both worlds for you. Right. Um, so you mentioned Alpha AlphaZero. Um, I'm just curious from, from your perspective with, um, with your background, how surprised were you by sort of the rise of the neural networks like Leela and AlphaZero in the chess Yeah, world? very surprised. Indeed, there's one fact that I find
0: absolutely stunning, but you can do it. Go, to, go download Leela Zero, and what step do you do? You download a network. And the network, you know, it's 500 megabytes or so. You know, I mean, it's bigger than downloading a picture, but less than downloading some cat videos. And that file has in it a really compressed essence of the entire knowledge of chess, such that the Leela engine doing shallow search with that oracle can defeat a deep search by Stockfish or another engine. So, so in other words, all, all, you know, we have friends who are authors and they've written books of knowledge. Uh, you know, Cyrus Lakdawala just published his 40th book. That's great. Um, but all of this knowledge has been compressed into one file that you could download in a couple of minutes on your whole network, and then with just shallow introspection of it, you play this incredible chess. Uh, so just the fact that chess is so compressible, is, it's, it's a term that's identified in my field. It's information complexity. But it, it's that's, to- totally awesome.
1: That's <laughs> incredible. So if you were to download this, what, what would the language be like? Like, is it in computer com- programming? No, what? What, what it is, is the, the 500 megabyte file, or however
0: many, 600 megabytes maybe, is the encoding of settings for a neural network. So in other words, it allows your computer to set up a simulation such that if you give it a chess position, the neural net will crunch it and then output a move. Mm -hmm. Uh, But nobody has an understanding of how those coefficients came to be. They are very deep. They are the result of a very long training process that users around the world also help with. So many, many computing hours of effort go into determining those coefficients. Uh, once tailored they can be used but they're not something that could have been designed directly by human agency you can't have me go into a neural network with 20 layers and say ah the number 3.14121 should go there the number -7.0645 should go there no those numbers are carefully determined by by sim, simulations and self play by processes that may also you know that nature may have evolved Uh, in in its own long computation time. And and the ultimate explanation of that is that our brains appear to work on neural principles. Um, We can't necessarily, there are scientists who do, but it's very difficult to go into our brains and say, what about this cell in our brain is making us prefer to play knight F6 check for a sacrifice instead of playing the queen's rook to the center? Hmm.
1: Yeah. So, and in another of your articles, I, and this was an old one, I can't, it was at least five years old. It may have been more another interview article. You mentioned at the time that you felt like, um, the limit of chess knowledge might be around 3,600 ELO. Yeah. Uh, the, the rating of perfect play. That's right. I still hold to that. Wow. Cause we're getting close. I mean, not yeah, we, I mean, the computers. <laughs> I, I mean, I
0: get indications, um, actually, Often I get indications that tell put, put a rating below 3,400, and then I know something must be wrong. Um, there's, there's a post I wrote titled, When Data Serves Turkey, that explains why I scale values. Because without the scaling, you get what would seem to be a perfectly corroborated and academically publishable estimate of 3,200 for perfect play, which is just, just uh, too low. Do things a different way, you get 3,400, which is a closer estimate, but I still think also too low. Uh, and this, by the way, this is an issue of scientific methodology. You know, you can get different answers depending on how you condition your data. Uh, drop those words into the global warming debate and kaboom. Right. Yet, on the other hand, this is with the, the, the controlled application of this is the way science has to be done. Um so anyway, I still hold to my estimate. I know computer ratings on c c r l have uh, started nipping above thirty five hundred or maybe thirty four sixty something like that but uh and but you also see different estimates of alpha zero's ratings so I think nothing is i mean there are different rating scales but uh in order to be comparable with my work, you have to put them on the human tournament slow chess scale okay. And, and so, so, so it's, it's a very difficult issue. But the uh, rating of perfect play is a very important indicator. I won't say parameter, but indicator in my model. And I did make a post on the blog in, at the beginning of February titled "A Strange Horizon," in which I detected a nonlinearity by using players under sixteen hundred uh, copious data for which has only been available in the past few years. And extrapolating that gives a little bit more breathing room to the estimates on the other end. It also tells me that my own model, uh, the resolution starts uh, uh, going down after Elo three thousand. I mean, I do my analysis to a certain point.
1: Hmm. Well, that'll be an interesting story to track. I mean, it, it seems like it's unfolding fairly quickly with uh, with how with how how these, uh, neural networks are progressing. Right. Right. Um, so a little bit about your chess, Ken. So you mentioned you made an allusion to being, uh, somewhat self-taught. And I also read an interview that Sam Copeland from chess.com did with you where he mentioned that you had a, he having lived in Buffalo at the same time as you knew that you had a sort of reputation for playing, um, less orthodox openings. So do you have, would you say that you have, a um, atypical approach to chess playing? um,
0: Uh, Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, here's one of the funny things is um, Joel Benjamin and Roman Kashvili. I think those are the two, wrote a repertoire uh, for white and black, uh, you know, know, pretty well-selling books. And there are more openings that I played in that repertoire than I would have expected. Maybe they're not so bad. Hmm. And even um, Karyakin opened B3 against So today, let's say. Yeah, so, so you know, uh, who knows? I mean, I, I will admit actually that um, the players who took up B six in the nineteen eighties in England and elsewhere found a lot of ideas that I didn't have. So, uh, okay. so maybe, but maybe you... it's just I was I was interested to explore rich domains of chess that were off the beaten track.
1: Hmm. And what when you discovered chess uh, and you got into it? did did you read a lot of books or did like how did you how did you improve so quickly
0: yeah i i i um had a uh, you know i i had a lot of interests as a child and i go into them whole wholeheartedly for months at a time so i did read a lot of chess books um you know nimzovich's my system made a large impression as did some collections of games columbek's uh, book on capablanca um and uh Later, Porn Power and Chess by Hans Kmach
1: made a big impression. Um, oh yeah, I remember that one. Um, yeah, yeah. It doesn't get reco- it's kind of been lost in the shuffle, but like, uh, and because I asked guests almost every week for recommendations, and that one hasn't come up that much. But it yeah, was a Luke classic. Opeenia. Who doesn't love? Yeah, Lucopenia. <laughs> I learned that from Mike Shahadi. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and how? How? Obviously, you're you've got you've got your eyes on the chess world in the anti-cheating work that you do, but how do you read any chess books these days? Do you read new ones as they come along ever? And, and, um, how closely, like, do you play blitz online? How, how active are you? Oddly enough, I don't
0: play online. It's, it's, it's odd. I, I, I just haven't felt the urge to do that. I have other online procrastinations, but chess is not one of them. Fantasy baseball, as, as, as we mentioned
1: yeah, as we talked about. So, and I saw you're you're from New Jersey. Are you a are you still a fan of a particular team or? Uh, yeah, Mets and uh, Yankees. Okay. Oh, both of them. Both of them, yes, yes. Yeah. Although
0: that's... I married into a Red Sox Cubs fan. Oh man,
1: so. you've you've got the, almost
0: the entire empire covered. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, I did once meet the uh, Red Sox stat head. Uh, Bill at, James at a, at, at a sports conference at, at Harvard. That was really great to talk with him. Yeah,
1: Bill, Bill James or, or no, 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 uh, someone else who, okay.
0: was, who was employed by them for a little while.
1: Okay, yeah, that must have been fun. What about meeting uh, chess greats? Um, in terms of when you were growing up, who was the strongest player you ever played? And uh, you know, did you ever have any Fisher encounters? Any. Um, nice I doors. met
0: Bobby just once in an elevator, and I, as a 13-year-old kid, I kind of obnoxiously followed him to an elevator, and he went out at the next floor. Um, and then I, I spoke with him once by phone. Um, the um, encounter, let's see. I mean, strongest player I played, maybe Rafael Vaganian when I lost a crazy game to him in the 1997 uh, World Student Team Championship. I beat Laszlo Szabo, a former uh, candidate. Oddly enough, the strongest player in the world today whom I played, probably Jan Elvest. Mm. And believe it or not, I played him on my campus. Uh, Wonderful local organizer Mark Meath ran a tournament that he came to, and we met in the last round. And um, we got out of book by move eight, and then I made a very bad error of judgment and was lost by move uh, 15.
1: Um, So um, but it was fun playing him. Um, um, that, yeah. And, and who, who was the co-champion when you were, I tried to find this online, but I couldn't when you, uh, tied US for first. Junior. Yeah. It was John Fedorowicz. Ah, okay. I mean, he was on the short list of people I might <laughs> I might have guessed, but, uh, yeah, yeah. But yeah. I couldn't track it down on my own. Um, and then I got
0: to be played, um, got to play in the U S championship the following year. Uh, cause, uh, cause you know, we, we had tied and, uh, I, um, became the first U S junior since Bobby Fisher, not to finish clear last. I finished tied for last.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And, and now junior juniors are holding their own. So, um, yeah, so what's, this yes. your...
0: Yeah, amazing well, talent. Although, you know, at, at the World Open, my generation also did, did pretty well. Michael Rode and and, and John and Fed and, uh, and was Benjamin there or was Joel at the uh, U.S. Senior,
1: something like that. Um, yeah, the these guys, and now they all play there. A lot of them are playing in the U.S. Senior Championship right now. Right, know, yeah. Um, but it, it's fun to see them in action still. So. Um, so, Ken, I I really appreciate all this perspective. This this has been really eye opening, and and um, just want to thank you for all you do for the, the chess community. It's um, yeah. it's a it's we're very lucky to have you. Um, it's a, it has it's a, been an amazing engagement. Yeah, it's a tough job, obviously. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so is there anything else? Any other topics you wanted to discuss before we let you get back to your busy life?
0: I guess I just hope that you know that the thoughtfulness uh, with uh, 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 that goes behind a lot of this has come out, in uh, the care, and uh, it's it's been an interesting exercise in in international relations and communications, all things that I hope can work forward for the betterment of society. So it's 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 uh, just as much the um, about the way that the world chess federation will be given its changes in the past year as, as much as combating cheating and yeah. much looking forward to those developments.
1: Yeah. It seems, seems promising so far. It seems, mm-hmm. it seems like they're, they're moving things in the right direction. I was, you know, I don't know if you saw this big story with, with Magnus Carlson and the, um, the gambling site that wanted to, to help sponsor Norwegian, uh, Norwegian chess. Um, I don't know if you caught this story, but... Yeah, I didn't fully. Okay. I mean, it's a... Basically, it, Tarje Svensson's been covering it, but the details are sound um, fairly um, muddy in terms of deciphering all the, the Norwegian politics involved. But it, basically, uh, nor- the Norwegian government supports Norwegian chess, as best I understand it. And they have an exclusive relationship with some casino. And then some other casino wanted to basically inject money directly into uh, the norwegian chess federation and magnus was in support of this in order to have more resources for young players and uh um it looks like it's not going to happen but anyway it's really a separate conversation but my main point was just that overall um the new fide um the new fide uh administration seems good and it seems like chess is moving in the right direction so hopefully we can keep the cheaters at bay um
0: yeah, yeah it's, 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 it's going to take a lot of concerted effort, education, um, and as said, you know, I said, could, I could tell you numerical statistical things, but a lot of it is education about just how to react or not overreact to anomalies. So in fact, actually, uh, I meant to make available a photo I took of a game uh, called um, Betrayal at the House on the Hill or something like that. Um, where once in playing that game, uh, basically there are dice with the numbers blank one or two, and rolled twelve dice and got eleven blanks, <laughs> and you know those things happen. <laughs> right. And, and and I'm sure that uh, you know estimating it, this probably happened over a, a couple dozen times among all people who have bought and played this game. Um, so just have to have to be aware of this. I mean, I guess, um, I mean, there's one example that that should be blazoned into everyone's head, which is, um, let's say you take a a screening test for a disease where the disease affects one in 100,000 people. The test is 99% accurate, and you get a positive result. What are the odds you have the disease? You might think 99%, but no. If you run it on 100,000 people, what are you going to get? The test 99% accurate, You so you're going to get 1,000 false positives, uh, and then the one person who has the disease will be a positive. So that's 1 out of 1,001. So your odds are actually less than a tenth of 1%, which is why you have a second test and a, a second opinion in cases like this. So this kind of factor is important to realize when you are dealing with a hundred thousand people playing chess every year. Yeah. Okay. So, 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 um, so it's more un- understanding of, of, uh, of this kind of thing and the realization that it's not just entering numbers, setting a program running and getting an answer back. A lot of people would like it to be that easy, but, Unavoidably, human reasoning and human factors and human judgment have to be involved.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm glad that that you have that perspective. I mean, being a numbers guy, being being a statistics expert, um, I think, um, yeah, it, 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 there could be someone in your role who didn't appreciate that. So it's good that, that you have the holistic view. Mm-hmm. Um, so on that note, Ken, I think I'll, I'll let you go. If if okay. so. I'll link to your blog. Is there anything else I could link to, or is there a way for people to to reach you and keep up with your your writing? Yeah, the blog and the and the and my professional web page. Okay. Has has links to all the other chess
0: information.
1: Okay. I mean,
0: a lot of the cases that are talked about in public are old, uh, but they're old for a reason. The principles are still good, and newer cases are should not be in public. So right. Um, but, are
1: there any uh, one last throwaway question? Is there any like huge case you're working on right now? I mean, obviously, you couldn't talk about the specifics, but is there anything big? Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I don't really know how to answer that question. I mean, let's put
0: it this way. Um, I mean, there are some communications that maybe need to be followed up by others. That's that's about the most I'll say. OK, but they're also I mean, I don't have time to spend looking for trouble right and it's kind of i'm part of part of a larger network of people and i want the other network of i i, I do need there to be so this is very important um there needs to be more spreading out of the knowledge and and even just management of the data so this is this is this has been an issue of finding a partner a couple of knowledgeable partners so that i'm not just one focused point of issue yeah that makes um, sense so that sort of thing. Now I have a, 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 I have a lot else going on with with quantum computing and um, and with making academic publications out of the chess research and um, and research with students. So
1: um, okay, um, yeah. Obviously, if anyone listening is qualified, uh, please please reach out because yeah, you can't do it alone. Um, all right. Well, thanks so much. This has been incredible. I really, I really appreciate it. And again, thanks, thanks for, for everything that you do, Ken.
0: Okay. You're very welcome. Thank you very much for having me on.
1: Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. Of course, that includes my producer, Matthew Passy and Geert Vandervelt. Thanks for supplying the theme music gear. I also want to thank everyone who helps spread the word about the show, whether it be by writing a positive review on Apple Podcasts or another platform, by telling a friend, by stopping a stranger on the street, social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Praising Perpetual Chess on all those things is helpful as well. But of course, most of all, I want to thank the people who helped support the show financially. Without you guys, Perpetual Chess would not be possible. I want to give extra special thanks to the following people and entities. Chessable.com, Quality Chess Books, the Capital City Chess Club, the Apprentice Twitch channel, Andrew Bach, Austin Clough, Benjamin Handelman, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, Dan O'Hanlon, I.M. Dimitri Schneider, Farah Sawaf, Greg Shahadi, Guvin Manet, Jens Green, John Jernigan, John Cromarty, Kelly Palmer, Lone Pine Chess, The Law Offices of Stuart Katz, The Seattle Chess Club, Sidney Andrews, Thomas Tachenko, and Todd Bryant. I also would like to give thanks to my Patreon and PayPal Perpetual Partners. They include, here comes the list. Andrew Woffler, Ace Vallega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, FM Andre Terikov, Benjamin Handelman, Bill Moran, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard Lynn, Brett Zeldo, Brian Mullis, Chad Hilton, Chris Balcom, Chris Flanagan, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabrie, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Selecki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, David Koford, Daniel Gale, Daniel Ginsburg, Dan Lucas of uschess.org, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Cramley of chessable.com, Dwayne Edmonds, Ethan Smith, I Am Elect, Donnie Ariel, Fox Valley Chess Club of Aurora, Illinois, Frank Tortoris MD, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vandervelt, Gerard Barto, Giovanni Russo, Greg Natal, Hans Shoot. Harish Srinivasan, James Banasya, Jason Willem, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, JJ Stranad, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, Justin Gardner, Jen Shahadi, Jerry Wells, John Thompson, GM Josh Friedel, Kare Christensen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, I am Kostya Kowutsky, Krishna Gopalakrishnan, Krishnan, Laura Beliavsky, Lucio Casada Silva, Martin Knudsen, Matthew Passi, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, Miguel Araspide, my main man, Moonmaster9000, Mr. Mike Shahadi, Nate Salon, Neil Bruce, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Pasi and Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Peter Merrifield, Randy Temple, Ricky Grijalva, Robert Steiner, Ryan Berg, Scott Doherty, Scott McKinnon, Steiner Lima, WGM Tatiov Abrahamian, Thomas Stanix, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tomas Komanich, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Victor Vrancouz, William Brock, William Peterson, FM Zhao Chang of Chess1000.com, and last but not least, Zhivko Storyanov. Thanks everyone, and I will catch you all next week. network